America's cultural right insists it's about freedom and protecting children. The reality is just the opposite. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Fear. After my many years of direct and indirect political involvement, I've come to the conclusion that nothing even comes close to the power of fear over politics and political change. All successful autocrats learn this to their exceptional benefit. The most commonly and proven effective uh, version of fear to be manipulated is the fear of the other. Of course, when it when dredged up and pumped up, that fear almost instantly becomes hate, as intended. So the task for dictatorial wannabes is discerning what fear has the most universal and powerful uh, energy to latch onto to serve their goals, which fear to manipulate. For example, in 2020, the Trump team figured out that child abuse sparked the most visceral and quick reaction, as intended. So they invented the fantasy, the boogeyman of Democrats all being pedophiles. Of course they made it up. It was complete nonsense. Then there was the fear and hate of refugees who happened to have darker skin. The simplest reaction, of course, was to build the wall. And of course, we've long had to familiarize ourselves with the fear of gays and more recently, our trans neighbors. This follows the centuries-long fear of people of color or different religions wiping away white Christian male dominance and control. And while this cultural right insists it's about freedom, as we'll see today from, from today's discussion, what they're pushing is the imposition of rigid definitions, the very antithesis of freedom. Of course, one way of being may not be allowed to dominate and control the rest of us in terms of gender identity. Today's cultural left has been fighting for years for sexual freedom, at least a century, really. Maybe it's even more challenging to the dominant hetero right than all of us being born into a certain gender identity. Can they handle the idea of individuals actually not being locked into sexual identity from birth? Is that possible? Could it be that life experiences, as with so many other aspects of life, may provide us with the possibility of further change as we get older? Our guest today is Avi Sakatopoulou, uh, and she trained as a clinical psychologist in New York after emigrating from Greece and Cyprus, places I'd like to visit, and subsequently completed training as a psychoanalyst at uh, NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, where she currently teaches. She and her co-author, Anne Pellegrini's new book is called Gender Without Identity. Quite a title. It's attracted praise and incited controversy within the psychoanalytic uh, uh, community. As has been noted, our current moment is one of both profound gender expansion and the predictable right-wing backlash that seeks to repress it. Avi, thanks so much for being on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive today. What was the need that this book seeks to address that hadn't been addressed? 
Thank you very much for the invitation and for the chance to speak to you and to your listeners about gender. Um, we, um, by we, I mean myself and my co-author, Dr. Anne Pellegrini, um, both work as clinical psychoanalysts. And that means, and very closely with the queer and trans community, uh, we are actually ourselves queer identified. And we found that it was becoming increasingly hard to work in the clinic with uh, the very prevalent ideas that the left has held on to very, um, very tightly, uh, at times even rigidly, as you mentioned earlier, for fear that giving up on them could only be counteracted by some transphobic or conversion, transphobic narratives or conversion narratives. Um, so we were for some time trying to work as we were trained to do from within a framework of thinking liberally uh, about gender diversity and sexual diversity and found that for some patients that worked and for some it didn't. And we have basically, uh, the way that we've come to describe it is that we have had to create the theory that we need in order to be able to work with patients who have diverse gender and sexual experiences without um, like affording them the resource of complexity that is routinely afforded to cisgender and uh, straight um, individuals, but which um, in, uh, in the mainstream world, both of clinical treatment and um, our political world of this moment, um, is kind of like really rife with a lot of transphobia, misogyny, a lot of hatred of otherness, as you were talking about Sorry. earlier. Yeah, stuff we don't understand, and it's a little—it's—it's it's not of the rigid uh, belief system that's been uh, so powerful for so long. It's a—it's uh, confusing to a lot of people, and the leftists tried to address this hatred and fear that's been manipulated from the right, but it's—it's it's been. Uh, we still have a ways to go. You know, change doesn't happen overnight. It's it's slow. We have to learn a lot of things. And one of the arguments that many in the LGBTQ plus community today embrace is the belief that no matter the male-female genitalia uh, with which we are born, gender identity is innate and immutable. You and uh, Dr. Pellegrini call on us to Resist that fiction that there's something bedrock about being queer or trans. That's no doubt surprising to many mm. listeners. In, in what mm -hmm. way is the notion of core gender identity simplistic, problematic, and potentially harmful to the LGBTQ plus uh, community? Please explain. How can it be harmful? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, actually asking this question, which is at the core of our book and which can sound very counterintuitive. So I want to, for a moment, set the framework against which we're having this conversation and want to raise these ideas, which is that for, for a very, very long time, the left has really struggled to find ways um, to push back against the notion that we're all heterosexual or that we are all um, cis by nature. And therefore, if you end up having homoerotic attractions or identifying as gay or if you're non-binary or if you identify as trans, therefore, that, that if you fall in these categories, that means that something has gone wrong developmentally or that you have been the most recent version, problematic version of that is that you have been brainwashed into thinking you're, mm. for example, 
trans. This is what we hear right now uh, around children. That's one of the rhetorics that's going around in the states that are pushing and passing incredibly um, phobic and discriminatory legislative agendas that restrict um, healthcare access for trans children. So the, the, the only way that the left has had at its disposal to push back against the, the oppression, suppression, and really the, the hunting of queer and trans life has been to um, state um, and stand by the argument that there's nothing um, wrong about being gay, gay trans, uh, or non-binary. It's just another way of being, just like cis people are like that from the beginning. Some trans people are like that from the beginning, and non-binary people and gay people, queer people are like that from the beginning. It's just part of their core identity. Mm. Now, of course, that, as we all know, unfortunately, has not um, protected us and protected queer and trans patients, especially children, from the claims made against them and the way in which they are. Um, it's like the libel against them, that they either don't exist or there's nothing true about their existence. It's just a, a warping of their true gender, which is assumed to be cis, or their true identity, which is assumed to be heterosexual. So, but nevertheless, even though we kind of like are, we understand and very much respect the the intention behind that political stance that some people are just born trans and some people are just born cis. Um, we have also found that to not be the case in some of our clinical experience. Not all trans people are born or mm. identify as trans or can look back on their childhoods and find that their transness has always been there. Um, and inspired by those kinds of clinical encounters that really challenged us as clinicians who were not trained to think expansively outside the born this way model, mm. we, we figured that we have to kind of like think further and really press ourselves to create the theory that we need and to create the thinking that we need to work more expansively. So we started um, coming up against, kind of like started realizing that part of the problem in the rhetoric on the left, however understandable that trajectory is, part of the problem has been this assumption that, kind of like that difference is also something that is something you're born with. Mm -hmm. And if you're born that way, that ostensibly would protect people from being um, discriminated against or pathologized. Uh, but that doesn't account for everyone. Uh, so we stand by the idea that there's nothing wrong with being queer or trans or non-binary. There's no way, wrong way to right. be queer or trans or non-binary. There's no wrong way to become queer or trans or non-binary. So it can change over time. And, and, you know, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about I'm right-handed. My mother uh, was was left-handed, and they tried to change her in her school in the 1920s mm. and 30s, uh, and, of course, they couldn't do it. And I wonder if if we're not born that way. I mean, it's tempting to think that that's how we're born. Are there aspects of humanity which are immutable, like right and left-handed or, or gender identity, others which are more cultural 
and therefore mm-hmm. subject to change. Can change be made from life experience and from the outside in? Or There's a lot there. <laughs> yes, there's a lot here. And what, what a great question, because in essence, what I hear you asking is, is, I hear you say two sets of things. The first is, like, how does change happen? Mm, and mm-hmm. certainly we are advocating for thinking more broadly about gender identity not being something that is said once and for all, say in childhood, but gender as having the capacity for some people, again, not for everyone, to evolve over time. So certainly I've worked with patients who come in and identify initially in treatment as non-binary, and then during the course of the treatment, they come to identify as trans. Um, or we have people who like have experienced themselves as being cis and at some point in their lives come to understand that like their identity is shifting towards being kind of like belonging to a category of gender that that fits more their self-expression and their understanding of themselves that is not cis at all. Uh, It could be like trans or trans non-binary and so on and so forth. So, one, so it's definitely change is one of the things that we want to talk about. But the other thing that we also want to say is that this sense that one is not born but becomes their gender is not something that is special to queer or trans people. This also applies to cis people and people whose gender seems more normative, who they experience it more along, which is known as the gender binary, male or female, or people who understand themselves as straight that too has a history of becoming, even though we become less interested in that history because collectively it's it's seen more as normal, I'll put normal in quotes here. So we don't become curious about that, even though the argument that we're making is very much applicable across the gender spectrum, including gender normativity and across the sexual spectrum, including um, heterosexuality. Yeah, and, and I think you, you bring up something really important here, the word curious. You know, the the, the cultural right, and, and, you know, we talk left and right, and it's not, uh, you know, capitalist versus Marxist. No, we're talking culture, mm. a culture war mm-hmm. here, which is quite a bit different. But being curious is something that scares the uh, stuff out of uh, the far, mm-hmm. you know, the right wing. They don't want you to be curious. Mm-hmm. Just accept what's handed from the top down, and it's it's uh, it's scary to them. It, and they yeah. uh, they they use this fear. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Avi Sakat. Topulo, who, with her uh, co-author Anne Pellegrini, uh, has written a new book, Gender Without Identity. And she's also the author, our guest is also the author of Sexuality Beyond Consent, Risk, Race, Traumatophilia. And that's put out by NYU Press as well. Anyway, uh, what about that that, that curiosity Mm. there and how Mm -hmm. upsetting that is and why that brings up so much fear? You know, the idea that, that you can be curious, that you can change, and that, I don't know, I get the sense that there's this really large spectrum, you know, of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I've got, once again, a lot there. Yes, absolutely. And your question goes to, to the heart of the matter, I think, the question of curiosity, because... Of course, what the right will also say when it's when it's called to account for itself, which it rarely does... Um, 
is that they're also interested in experts. Uh, but what we do know is that the experts that end up in the medical boards that then in turn advise the legislative measures that are being adopted across the country right now, uh, whose goal is to basically censor transness and queerness out of existence, Yes, that these kinds of boards uh, include, um, quote-unquote, experts who are very selectively placed on those panels and who do not enjoy the majority opinion of their professional colleagues, who are not in keeping always with the positions and the position statements that um, major medical, psychiatric, psychological, and psychoanalytic organizations have put forward in terms of kind of like how how they are encouraging us to think uh, through clinical experience and research about gender and sexual diversity. So so the right um, is interested in a, in a particular kind of expert, in the expert that will work alongside that agenda to actually put queer and trans people out of view. Uh, and we see this right now with you know, like this really bizarre intervention that argues that there shouldn't be, not just argues, has legislated mm. against drag queens in, in, in libraries. Like, oh, it's just, like really bizarre yes. obsession with difference um, and with with diversity in a way that you know is not just about gender. We see this around race, like the suppression of critical race theory and the banning of books. Um, it's like a really remarkably uh, absurd, unexpected on the one hand, and on the other hand, historically very, uh, very, very expected direction that mm. the right takes when we move towards more dictatorial and in some ways even fascist, I would say, yes. ways of being in the world. Um, but I did want to come back to one thing that oh, you sure. said that I, I didn't want to drop that stitch um, when you were talking about um, kind of like handedness and how you're right-handed mm -hmm. and your mother was left-handed. And kind of like we, many of us remember that left-handed kids were trying to, were being forced yes. uh, to the extent that was possible to kind of like write Kind of like right-handedly, because there was something ostensibly wrong with being left-handed, so like an entirely arbitrary, right, and kind of like not based in anything kind of misconception. So, because so we might say that you know this insistence on normalizing everybody and putting everybody on the same normative path, mm. where there's a right way to do things, to write with your right hand, to be straight, to be cis, to be white, to, or if you're not white, to aspire to whiteness, to aspire to cleanse yourself from all kinds of cultural reference that, like when we're thinking about race, that have to do, say, with blackness. Um, mm -hmm. All of these are kind of like part, these are allied struggles and part of the same um, yes. political network. Mm -hmm. But I do want to say very clearly that when we're talking about gender shifting for some people through the course of their lifetime, we are not talking about conversion therapy. We are not talking about clinicians who go in and try to change somebody's gender or try to change somebody's sexual orientation. I mean, that is not done as frequently anymore. Goodness. But certainly there are incredibly politically powerful domains in my field, um, some of them kind of like connected to kind of like political powers, um, 
there are certainly colleagues in my field who work um, from a place of what I would understand as conversion therapy, where they take the argument that we're making um, or might take the argument that we're making about how gender is mutable to, to make the following, I think, very problematic point, which is to say, well, if it's mutable, why would we not be wanting to work with kids, especially trans children, to, um, to route them to a gender since this is not their true gender or their authentic gender, to route them to a gender that is cis. Like, why would we not want that? And so this is what, why I wanted to kind of like articulate that kind of problematic stance and to differentiate it from what we're saying, because we don't believe, and nobody has ever shown, to be honest, that it's possible for somebody's gender or sexuality to change on command or through intervention or because somebody else thinks it should be different, be that a parent or a clinician or a legislator um, or a priest or somebody in the religious community. Uh, so these kinds of shifts that we're talking about happen more spontaneously as a result of how each subject responds to experiences in their lives, including actually trauma. Mm. I, yeah, one can never... Uh, underestimate the power of trauma that lasts who, more than a lot of us would think and, and can change uh, many years, decades later. And it's, it's something, you know, if, if we want to have freedom, you know, and people enabled to be their authentic self, uh, they, get, they get to change. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think many of us listening today know people who are either bisexual or have started mm -hmm. one way and then as they get older they switch partners to a different uh, uh, gender does mm -hmm. does this conform I mean I know people for sure does this conform with your argument in what ways is all gender not just trans and queer gender a complex acquisition that involves kind of necessarily and well maybe not necessarily but often involves change over time Mm. Um, that, that question is a million dollar question right now, um, though not everybody's open to what, what that question could open us up to. So let me start with kind of like the most um, standard narrative around gender, which is a narrative of normative gender, which is that children are born mm -hmm. and then at birth, the doctor inspects the genitals and makes a pronouncement based on this visual inspection. And the pronouncement is, it's a girl, it's a boy. Right. And that, the idea is, is formed by biology. So your, your chromosomes, your hormones, your phenotype, tell us what your gender is. And then if all goes well, the story goes, you will grow up to develop into the gender that you were assigned at birth. Um, part of what uh, has become more mainstream in the conversation these days, even though it is not a new phenomenon, and it has existed kind of like through history in various different iterations, is that there are many people for whom that experience is not actually true, that the gender assigned at birth does not end up being the gender into which they live and the gender with which they identify. Oh, for sure. But 
Mm-hmm. But what I also want to say is that even for people who do end up identifying with that gender, meaning people that we describe as cisgender, for them too, a lot of labor goes into becoming cis and coming to experience that gender that was announced to you by others mm. at birth as being yours. That too, you have to learn how to inhabit. You have to make it yours. Otherwise, you know, there's no gender that is true in and of itself psychic labor and social labor and relational labor and institutional labor goes into making uh, one's gender feel one's own. Mm. Boy, no question about that. And, and and as I think about, you know, various movies and ideals uh, through the uh, many decades, uh, uh, the, the, the ideal that we're, we try to understand and try to support. And, you know, I, I was born in the 50s and my journey, we were all brought up with a clear picture mm. imposed on us from the outside of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Real men, mm-hmm. real men, of course, are strong and macho. And mm. in the First World War, which regular listeners know I'm obsessed with, commanders berated mm-hmm. men in the trenches who were afraid to go up and face the uh, you know fire hose of machine gun bullets they mm. they were afraid to do that so the commanders berated the men be a real man go up and over so that meant mm-hmm. almost instantaneous death of course and ideal women <laughs> back in the 50s were like southern bells you know depending mm-hmm. on strong men and uh, I wonder about, you know, if like water fountains in the 50s were not, they were not the issue. It was mm-hmm. race, it was racism, you know, it was mm-hmm. white supremacy, no question. And I, I wonder about this, this imposition of a real man and a real woman, if that's, if they're, they're a little shaky about that. And if, if that's a motivating factor behind the fear of, you know, a fluid uh, gender identity. Mm, A terrific example, really, like the ways in which um, people who understand themselves to be cis are themselves disciplined into their gender, sometimes at great cost to them. And I'm not speaking here about people who might have otherwise come to identify as being as belonging to another gender. I'm not talking about people here who do not, who are assigned, for example, male at birth and don't understand themselves as men. I'm talking about people who end up understanding themselves as men. A lot goes into the kinds of sacrifices and psychic amputations, really, that uh-huh. men have to make of themselves yes. to be able to uh, to be seen as uh-huh. worthwhile men, mm. as not falling out of their gender. And for women, too. I mean, you know, it's... There are so many ways in which, like, to stay within your proper gender uh-huh. as a woman, there's all kinds of things that you should not be doing or thinking or engaging with. Otherwise, in fact, the risk is always of falling out of one's gender. And uh, it, it's actually interesting to note here that for people whose gender was not necessarily in question, but their sexual orientation, meaning not in question in the sense of like they were assigned female at birth, they have experienced themselves as female, but their femininity is not what makes up their femaleness, but they are women who experience themselves as more masculine or even gay women. 
that kind of like is kind of like we begin to see that there are versions of homosexuality that have some crisscross with thinking about gender complexity. So, kind of like part, for example, like you know the the critique of male homosexuality has always been and in some ways continues to this day to be that it is an affront to masculinity. Mm. To me, you know, my relationships are not affected by any other relationships. My sexual identity is not affected by any. Why? There's the, the fear of their own masculinity, you know, the insecurity, just it, it's, it's appalling mm-hmm. to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, having to fit in. I, I think we all know uh, women who... I mean, I've heard it said, you know, gosh, I wish I looked more feminine, you know, or I wish mm-hmm. I looked more, you know, how oppressive is that? My goodness, you know, the, the boxes that were put in there and, mm-hmm. you know, the old ideal of the real man, you argue that this hardcore definition of masculinity could really be a scar tissue of how he's managing, this particular man is managing family turmoil and, and his history. I think it's mm-hmm, a very significant mm-hmm. point, which is it's important for society to realize, and I'm hoping you can explain this about the scar tissue of how he's managing family turmoil and what how that plays itself out in one's life. Mm. This, this turn towards thinking not just about uh, genders that are um, trans or non-binary or otherwise complex, but thinking also about how cisness comes about. How is it that um, that you're assigned male at birth and you grow up to feel like a man? Is it enough to be assigned male at birth? Is it enough to have kind of like male genitals or male chromosomes? Like our argument is, and we're certainly not the only ones who have made this particular argument, is that certain, well, certainly it's not enough. Um, and that a bunch of other factors have to converge for you to have to, to, to arrive to a definition of yourself as a man. And that also has to do with culture, what is expected of men. Mm. So there's some degree of training, if you will, some degree of rehearsing your gender yeah. that you do in your childhood. Um, when you're told boys don't do that and you right. get to go out and do it again. And then your parents tell you if you succeeded or not. And this is like a very <sighs> gradual but meticulous process of being trained into our genders. And this is the tricky part because, because I don't believe, we don't believe that there's anything authentic to gender. That is not necessarily a deviation from your gender. It's not like if you didn't have all of these interventions you would have your true gender and you would go about life undisturbed. Gender always involves interventions by others who, are, who want things from us, interventions that can be violent, that can be um, mm-hmm. pressing us or directing us to this place or the other. And it is what we do with that pressure that determines how we end up having a gender, inhabiting a gender, and feeling like it's our own. And at the end of the day, it's not the question of whether your gender came about as a result of the other's intervention, which is always the case. Uh, There is no society where gender expectations are not put on children. It's more a question of whether you're allowed to take these expectations and take 
take everything that is said to you about your gender, the way that you experience your body, the way that your body looks and how others respond to it, and through a very complex psychic process, weave that into something that feels like it's your own. And it is that that makes your gender what it is. So in that sense, you know, there's no, no way to confirm what somebody's gender is. So, you know, very often colleagues approach me to discuss cases around um, work with trans children. And when they're trying to help parents make decisions about hormones uh, or about interventions mm. uh, that have to do with um, kind of like later in life, like late adolescence, nearing adulthood, uh, because that's the only time that medical, that um, surgical decisions are being made. Surgeries are not being performed on children. Um, when colleagues reach out to me, the, the question that I most often get from trained psychologists and trained psychoanalysts is, but how do I know if this is the child's true gender? Mm. As if there is some test or some... Um, set of mm-hmm. indications of what your child's gender is. And if you have the right metrics, then you can somehow discern what it is and make the pronouncement that this is a truly trans child or a truly cis child mm. or a truly non-binary child. But none of this makes sense. There's literally no measure that we have to do that because there's nothing that's originary about gender. There's nothing that's true or measurable. Gender exists just by virtue of the fact of how it is experienced at any one moment in time. And uh, that, that, brings, that brings up the question about moment. You know, what, what, do, what mm-hmm. do you mean by, by a moment? I mean, you know, somebody could feel, just for a couple of minutes, one way, and uh, what is a moment, you know? How do, mm. how do you measure that? I'm certainly not trying to imply that, you know, you could be this gender today and the other gender like an hour from now and the third gender three hours from now. I'm not talking about that. But I am trying to speak and make room for the fact that the fantasy, the fiction, that Mm -hmm. there's something stable about your gender. Mm -hmm. And if you discover what your true gender is, then there would be no change around it as long as you've made the right quote-unquote diagnosis gets it in, gets us into a lot of trouble. And I, I want to tell you what I mean by that. Sure. Right now, a lot of the pushback in the right on the right against transaffirmative care and healthcare access for trans children and now also for adults um, has has been arguing that um, that trauma may have something to do with how somebody became trans. So in that story, like Mm. everybody's normally cis and if you've been traumatized, then you can become trans and then the goal is to fix that, to repair it, to somehow heal it. And if you do that accurately and well, then you can return back to your original gender, which is ostensibly uh, the same as the one assigned at birth. So under this premise, um, there is kind of like a lot of kind of like a lot of conversion therapies are authorized through this through this idea. On the other hand, there's also the idea of like, well, you know, some people are just trans; they should just transition. But if you start with a premise that some people are just trans and it comes from nowhere, it's a true mm. identity. Mm, true, right? If that person at some point decides that they need to transition back into cisness 
or transition into another version of transness or non-binary gender, then something really, really uh, problematic happens on the political level, which is that we then begin to say that those people who did transition had had their original diagnosis of transness, uh, that, that that original diagnosis of transness was inaccurate. So detransitioning becomes an indication or is weaponized as showing that anybody who is trans and detransitions means that maybe they weren't trans, maybe they were cis all along and we just got it wrong, they got it wrong. So now in order to do better work and take care of people who detransition, we need to be more careful about who we diagnose as being trans. Mm. Right? And I say we diagnose not because I think that that's how it should work, but because like, the way that the state addresses trans people is through their providers. Um, that's how you get qualified to have medical treatment and to have in many states where it's still available like, to mm. be able to have surgical interventions, you need letters from clinicians. So we are then called upon to diagnose whether somebody's trans. So if somebody detransitions, I hope that this is clear. It is complicated. If the idea is that you have a true gender and that could be trans, and then if you discover it, great. All you have to do is transition. But then you did transition. The implication is that the original diagnosis of being trans was wrong, right? Right. If that is possible, then our job, so to speak, uh, or so the argument goes, our job is to do a better job of diagnosing who is truly trans. Truly. Right? Mm. And truly trans means that all of a sudden clinicians have this exorbitant power yes. an exorbitant burden, because it's also a burden. I don't want to minimize that for clinicians to act as if we can measure things and diagnose things that are actually undiagnosable and unmeasurable. Mm. Gender just exists on the basis of our experience. There's no, there's no way to discern that somebody's gender is this or that. Mm or just to, to figure out, as some clinicians are trying to do, if somebody who claims is trans is really trans. Wow, this is a, a thicket and the idea of, of true gender identity. You know, it's being challenged here. And for those who have, may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about some real fairly deep levels of, of what freedom means. You know, and the right claims to be all about defending freedom. Ha! Huh. It's really the antithesis. And our guest uh, today is uh, Av Avis uh, Sakatopoulo, who's uh, got a new book out with her co-author, Anne Pellegrini, called Gender Without Identity. And she is uh, a uh, psychologist, uh, a lot of good degrees there, impressive degrees. It's some tough territory. And uh, I, as you mentioned, as we mentioned in the beginning, fear is politically exceptionally powerful, and it's easy mm -hmm. to stir up. It's really easy to mm -hmm. stir up. I remember during the 2020 campaign when the Trump people were saying, oh, all Democrats are pedophiles. People, What could be more scary than child abuse? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. th th it works. That's why they chose it. Uh, and... It's, it's true that in, t in terms of fear across the country, mainly in the old Confederacy, gender affirmative care is frightening to many and is being challenged, particularly for minors. As, as psychoanalysts, should, should parents, children and their parents have a right to access gender affirmative care? And what about, is there some, 
magic age at which kids should be allowed to? I mean, I've, I've heard people who are, you know, afraid of, uh, of trans uh, care that, uh, gosh, kids under X years should not have X. I mean, it's, it's how do you me- measure this? What, and let me ask also, what are the consequences for trans and non-binary kids' psychological health if they're mm-hmm. denied this kind of health care? Mm-hmm. So yeah. a few questions there. Key questions, though, because indeed, um, what we see time and again in the clinic, I certainly see it in my practice, I work with kids, have been working actually with trans kids for for 20 years now, long before uh, these conversations were in the public domain. What we see time and again is that uh, withholding care and withholding the gender affirmative um, hormones, um, but also social practices that are involved in child transitioning can be really detrimental to, for sure, the mental health of children, but also it really puts tremendous strain in the relationship with the parent, an unfair strain, undue strain. So we see kids who can become extremely anxious or depressed, um, certainly um, Suicidal ideation is much more increased and prevalent in children who understand themselves to be trans and who are not given the chance to have access to the care they need. Um, I should also make sure to mention that when we're talking about affirmative care, I want to clarify what that means because there's so much misunderstanding and actually... Um, kind of like the garnering of fear, kind of like the generating of fear to yes. panic parents. Oh, yes. um, and, you know, as you were very correctly pointing out earlier, this is how fear works, and it works especially well so in relation to kids. So maybe, maybe we'll go back to that in a moment. But when we talk about gender affirmative care for children, um, when it comes to children below the age of puberty, like or becoming prepubertal, so depending on the child, somewhere around 11, all we're talking about are clothes and pronouns and names. But- <laughs> That's all we're talking about. We're talking about whether your child will wear a dress or a skirt or like a jersey and kind of like whether whether they're, what they're going to do with their hair, mm. whether you're going to call them Bob or Mary, or whether you're going to call them kind of like you know, Rowan or, I mean, that's what it comes down to. And <laughs> that is, you might say, like, you know, it's by no means irreversible. And it does not, it should not generate the level of moral panic that yeah. it does. And yet, <laughs> and yet you and I know what's going on, as, as do our listeners. Um, Wait. What what's this? As as anybody who's paying the least bit of attention knows, I mean, there've been drag shows and men dressing up as women for time immemorial, you know. And women, mm-hmm. it's I mean, it's as you say about dressing up. Do you wear a dress? Do you, whatever, you know. It's just what you wear. And like, come on, people, is it that mm-hmm. surfacy really? This ruckus that they're stirring up these days with surprising success to me over drag shows and drag story hours. What What's mm. behind this hysteria and panic? And, and how do you suggest we address that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I wish that I could say that I have the answer to how to address that. Yes, that, great, that would be but... nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish I had those kinds of superpowers. But I will say this. 
um, you've been you've mentioned kind of like the kind of like the stirring up of anxieties around pedophilia earlier, and I think that. In, in some ways, the figure of the child, and what I mean by the figure of the child is not actual children, but the concept of children that need to be protected, right. have always been at the epicenter of how conservative movements try to gain control over progressive forces. We see this, we've seen this with children, uh, with, um, with children like in the um, like Brown uh, the Board of Education. No, my, Right, the, the integration of schools, kind of like the issue of racial mixing, uh, to use that old language, uh-huh. has always played out around children. Um, mm. The question of like whether homosexual people, as the lingo used to be, could be teachers, because what if they infect their students with their homosexuality? Mm-hmm. That panic around this case, not about race, but about gayness, has also been, has had children at its epicenter. And now it should come as no surprise to anybody who's following how the right has been, what the right has been weaponizing and how for its conservative agendas. It should come as no surprise that trans kids have been at the, have had a bullseye on them Mm. in the last few years. Um, So, you know, why children? I think because everybody can get behind the notion that children need to be protected. And then that becomes a very mobile, usable strategy for being inflated with agendas that have to do with the panic around difference, Mm. the panic around kind of like the panic around immigration, the panic around blackness, especially, but any any either kind of non-whiteness. and also, the pan- all of these panics, to some degree, are also undergirded by um, capitalism and kind of like worries about who has control over what, over what forces of production, uh, means of production, and kind of like how money is circulating in the country. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how how just you know shaking things up. Uh, I I remember again showing my age here. Uh, the dangers of rock and roll. Well, they were right because mm, you know mm-hmm. what they were. It was black kids dancing with white kids. Wow, scary stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And and they have this image of, as as you say, I think this is interesting. It's not about actually protecting kids. It's about this picture of their idealized child that was like, mm-hmm. you know, the idealized white kid doesn't dance with black kids. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell, what's, what's the picture of the idealized child that they're trying to protect mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, actually protecting children? Yeah. I mean, that's the difference between the figure of the child mm-hmm. and actual kind of like real flesh children who have like who suffer in being kind of like kept from being yes. able to access the medical care they need. Um, but the figure of the child imagines the child as white, um, as able-bodied, as belonging to a certain class. So poor children, mm. even if they're white, also are subject to these kinds of oh, interventions and these kinds of uh, state surveillance. Um, mm. So kind of like we're talking about a very particular kind of child who is also imagined to be asexual, meaning there's no, the child has no sexuality, uh, hence a child who understands themselves as gay is a child who may have, that's how we get to maybe this child has been sexually abused. Maybe that's why they're thinking about sex. 
Even though, of course, we impute heterosexuality to children all the time. <laughs> all the time. We just assume that children are, are straight. Um, just as we assume that children are cis. Until told otherwise. And then when, and this is something that I say in my practice quite often, when a child gathers the, the strength and finds disturbingness in them to say, I am not who you think I am, parents sometimes, not always, but sometimes find themselves really surprised. And that surprise has to do with, but we had assumed from the beginning that you would be as the child, the figure of the child has been presented to us, that you would be straight and cis. Mm. And, and it ain't necessarily so, as that other song goes. And for those who may have just mm -hmm. tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about a key aspect of freedom, freedom to be who we are and to be to recognize the effects of life experiences. Our guest today is Dr. Avi Sakatopoulo, who, uh, with her co-author Anne Pellegrini, has a new book out, Gender Without Identity. And it's uh, we're looking into uh, areas that uh, the right is terrified of and knows that a lot of people are terrified of, and, and they're, they're using it. And uh, in large extent... It's working, so it's interesting. It seems like you know, under the guise of protecting kids, they they may mm. actually be oppressing kids, uh, and oppressing kids, and also oppressing minority populations yeah. in the ways in which, for example, people of color have. Uh, their homes invaded by protective services at a much lower oh, threshold yes. than white mm. families are intervened upon. But let's also not not forget something else that's happening right now around the country, which is also a, kind of like really atrocious, which is the loss of reproductive freedom for women, also oh. in the name of prote protecting the child, the unborn child. And here we see how close the figurative child is to kind of like these kinds of... Um, campaigns uh, against restricting the rights of those who are deemed not just other, but also lesser than. Oh, yes. And and that guise of, you know, protecting the unborn. What a bunch of bull. They don't mean that at all. They mm -hmm. just want to impose their version of sexuality, period. End of story. I've been in the pro-choice uh, struggle for a long time. Boy, I've, yes. I, Meanwhile, I, we have adolescent, adolescent girls who are dying because they can't get abortions right now. Yes. So much for protecting the children. And, and again, I'm old enough to remember uh, back alley abortions. They did some, mm -hmm. I mean, ew, horrible, it, but that, that's not what they care about. Um, so there's, there's no question. Here we are in 2023, well into the 21st century. No question we've come a long way toward taking down some of it, the old terribly restrictive, incredibly harmful barriers on sexual and gender identity. They've had, the culture right has had remarkable ascendancy in just the past couple of years. Mm. How mm -hmm. optimistic are you or aren't you that we will continue to move toward, you know, real uh, identity and, and freedom? Um, <laughs> I, I think I, I see this kind of like really intensifying in the last couple of years as, as all of us do and I, I don't think it's stopping anytime soon there's actually I think that there's a way in which this is occurring across across the world like in my country I was I'm partly Greek uh -huh. the last elections just just a week ago yeah. gave a 
gave a predominance of the right-wing party of 20 points, which is unprecedented mm, yeah. in, in European history right now. That's the biggest, kind of like the biggest gap in um, yeah. uh, voting gap, not voting gap, it's the biggest uh, gap in kind of like votes received right. uh, between the right and the second party. So what, one of the reasons we wanted to write this book is because in the context of this really um, vicious attack by the right, it becomes very easy for the left to want to barricade against hmm. kind of like notions of like born this way. And we can understand why, like so much is at stake. But, but it doesn't work. It hasn't worked historically. The notion of... Um, kind of like this is just the identity somebody has and it should be it should that is a lone reason for them to have rights that hasn't worked and no. it also gets us into problems with detransitioning and also with trauma you know some and this is something i see in the clinic not 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 all of my trans patients but some of them and also in some of my cis patients that sometimes traumatic experience in the effort to cope with traumatic experience trauma becomes a resource in a very paradoxical way mm. for new forms of becoming. And we are very afraid of that argument in the left, as a result of which the right uses it as a way to discredit and disqualify transness. And until we have gotten mm. comfortable with the notion that some versions of queerness and transness arise as a response to trauma and as a way of living with traumatic impacts and that that's not a non-legitimate view yes. of transness, uh -huh. that there's nothing wrong with becoming trans that way or with becoming queer that way, until we in the left make peace with that fact, it's going to be very hard to fight back those who say that if there's trauma in the picture, and when is there not trauma in the yeah, picture right. really of some sort or another, that when there's trauma in the picture, then one's, that disqualifies one's gender or sexuality mm. if they are non-normative. Uh, my understanding, trauma oftentimes leads to very positive outcomes, discoveries. You know, mm -hmm. you, 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 you learn more from, from defeats than oftentimes than you do from, you know, easy victories. Well, wh what does it matter to the larger population? who don't question their own gender identity. Why is it important to us, and I, I happen to be straight, uh, mm -hmm. whatever, uh, but uh, why is it important to us, and what can we do? What can we do? Mm, well, I think that to understand and begin to appreciate that we have all arrived at our genders, whatever our genders are, into our sexualities, not naturally, not by some internal interior truth or some that it's not an authentic expression of the self but something that feels real because it's the thing that we have constructed if we can move towards understanding that all genders and all sexualities are to some degree inventions and i say inventions it might sound strange because what else do we have at this moment in time but if you took it take a historical outlook, you see that there's like been many versions of gender and many versions of sexuality throughout the epochs, throughout, throughout kind of like the decades and the centuries. So if everybody can begin to appreciate that there's no such thing as true gender, including one's own, and that what, it, what makes it worthy of respect and dignity is just the fact that we experience it as it is, then that can open up space 
to to be curious about other people and to be receptive and kind and interested in other people rather than panicked about their difference and trying to suppress it. Well, I, I like to believe that it's only a small, very loud portion of the population that's, that's so uh, panicked about this and that, that most of us are like, ah, come on, you know. <laughs> we, we want people to be authentic who they are uh, and that, 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 that you know, the, the outcome will be good in the future. It's, there's, there's a lot to do, there, and, and it's important. Mm-hmm. This, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. This is uh, an area that's it, it's important to explore and to, and to be open to it and to be curious about it, I think, and uh, it can only add to our freedom. The book is called Gender Without Identity. We have been speaking with uh, co-author Avi Sakotopoulo, who uh, has written it with Ann Pellegrini, and I believe it's put out by NYU Press. Thank you so much for being with us today, and let's hope for some, uh, you know, appreciation of authenticity and uh, and curiosity. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Bert. supposed to be who am I supposed to be look at me what am I supposed to be what am I supposed to be look at me If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.